Welcome to the Torah Guide, a podcast where we explore how the Hebrew Bible is all about Jesus and meditate on what it has to say to us. I'm your host, Aaron Dranoff. Hey guys, it's Aaron. This is a new podcast, but my goal is that by the end of this year, we'll have 100 ratings. Yes, that's sort of a random goal because 100 is an arbitrary number, I get that. But that's my goal because ratings is one of the best and easiest ways for us to help people find this podcast. So you can help me meet this goal. If you wouldn't mind just taking a second, wherever you're listening to the podcast, and just giving a quick rating, that would be super helpful to getting the podcast shown to more people. Okay. We're in the middle of a series exploring how the Torah sets the entire Hebrew Bible up on a trajectory towards the Messiah. And today we're going to start the conversation about what it means to shape our lives around the Torah. This is going to take a few conversations to cover because it's an important topic. So I really want to make sure that we honor each part of the conversation and not rush it. But we'll get started today. So I want to ask you guys to think about something before we get started. Is there anyone in your life who you think this series would be helpful for? I'm making this series because I want to help you guys really own how the Hebrew Bible sees itself as a work that is leading directly towards Jesus. My hope is that you'll understand it and be able to communicate it. And I think that's so important because a lot of Christians really struggle with the Old Testament. It can make them feel uncomfortable or just feel challenging, so they'll tend to stay away from it. And at the same time, I want to help Jewish people see that the interpretation of the Hebrew Bible that says it's all about Jesus isn't a Christian invention but it's actually the the interpretation of the text that's native to the text that the authors wanted us to understand. And even though it's often been presented as bad news that Jesus is who the Messiah is for Jewish people, it's actually the best news ever, not only for Gentiles, but it's the best news ever for Jewish people too. So I'm just going to ask you guys to think and pray as you're listening and over the week who God might put in your mind to share this series with. And for extra credit, maybe you can even talk about the reflection questions together after the episode. Okay, think about that over the week. Um, Right now, let's talk about the Hebrew Bible. So far in this series, we've discovered that the Torah is supposed to be central to Jewish life. And it's all about humanity's only hope for restoration. Almost immediately, humanity rejects their source of life and gets exiled into a world full of evil and suffering. Because we decided good and evil on our own elevating ourselves to God's place. The Bible is God's answer to humanity's problem. It's his plan to rid the world of evil without getting rid of humans who keep causing the problem. Israel, Abraham's descendants, are the first step in God's plan. But like we said, we haven't actually looked at what it means to shape our lives around the Torah or what the rest of God's rescue plan is yet. So that's what we're going to start doing today. We're going to start the conversation about what it looks like to shape our lives around the Torah. And spoiler alert, it's going to lead us right to the Messiah. I mean, this is the Messianic Trajectory series. All of this is headed to the Messiah. But I've said this in the previous episodes, and it's worth saying again, you don't have to take my word for any of that. As we go, hopefully it'll become evident that the authors of the Hebrew Bible had one primary purpose, the Messiah. And it'll make sense why the Talmud says... All the prophets prophesied only towards the Messianic era in Tractate Sanhedrin 99a. 
And then why Jesus viewed it similarly. Jesus said, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms is one of the ways that they referred to the Tanakh, the Torah, Nevi'im, Ketavim, in the second temple period. And Jesus thought it was all about him, the Messiah. He said everything written about me. And the New Testament authors also all thought it was about the Messiah. Paul, talking about the Hebrew Bible, said, You have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Messiah Jesus. So Paul, who was a Jewish man in the Second Temple period, talking about the sacred writings, which for a Jewish man in the Second Temple period would be the Tanakh, said they are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Messiah Jesus. So all these people, the Talmud, Jesus, the New Testament, all can agree on the fact that all the prophets are all pointing to the Messianic era, from the Torah, to the prophets, to the writings. So let me use a metaphor that I brought up last week. The trajectory of the Hebrew Bible as a whole is all driving at the Messiah, and it's creating a really specific Messiah-shaped hole that needs to be filled. And God is the only one perfectly shaped to fill that hole. Then when Jesus arrived on the scene in history, he fills that hole perfectly. Before we jump in, I just want to thank you guys. I was able to, to launch the Torah Guide early this year because of some very generous people who believed in the idea. The Torah Guide started because, well, I spent a little over six months devoted to organizing all the research that I had been doing for years into a book about how the Hebrew Bible truly does point to Jesus and why traditional Judaism today doesn't see it that way. Then, right after I had finished the book, I was hanging out with a friend of mine named John. He's a great guy. He loves the Bible. We were talking about the story of Judah and Tamar, which is a story in Genesis that a lot of people tend to misunderstand. And I know people who have actually had such a hard time with this story that they don't even want to believe in God. So him and I were talking about the story, and he loved the conversation, and he, he suggested that I make a video about it. So I did, just to see how it would go. And that video is actually still on the Torah Guide YouTube channel. You can find it. It's called The Lion of Judah. It's not the same illustration quality as the shorts that we're putting out now, but I still really like it. I think it's a great, great explanation. Um, but some people at my church and, and churches nearby saw the video and they encouraged me to start uh, what ended up becoming the Torah guide. And they had read the book and, and they'd seen that first video. So they, they funded the project enough to get started. But the goal we had in mind is that I'll start making the content. And if it's helping people enough, then all the people who are listening and watching the content will chip in to keep it going. And if they don't chip in, that means it wasn't really helping enough for people to give financially. Um, so we won't keep it going because it's not being as helpful as, as we had hoped. So all that is to say, to those of you who have been giving, I just want to say thank you. And those of you who started giving last week after I asked, thank you so much. That's awesome. Um, now I just wanted to take a moment and let you know that I saw your gifts and I appreciate you helping me make this content. This is, this is really a team project. So thank you for joining the team. We still have quite a bit to go to be able to keep making the podcast and videos through 2024. So if you are enjoying the podcast, please consider giving what you're able. We have people who give anywhere from $15 a month to $250 a month. So God will use and bless whatever you give. So if it's on your heart to give, just give whatever you can. You can sign up at thetoraguide.com slash give. Okay, so we're starting to talk about what it looks like for the people of Israel to shape their lives around the Torah. Now let's remember who the Jewish people are. After the disaster at Babylon, 
where humanity unified against God, God chose a new human, a new Adam, named Avram, to use him to restore all of humanity. God promised to bless Avram's family and all families through his family. Then Avram's, or Abraham's, descendants went down into Egypt where they became slaves. But down in Egypt, God also remembered his promise to bless Abraham's descendants. And it says that the sons of Israel, who are Abraham's descendants, were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Exodus 1.7. Then God brought them out of Egypt and gave them instructions for how to be a nation, which are the 600 plus laws in the Torah. And he gave Israel the choice to listen to him by obeying the commands in the Torah and have life, or to not listen to his commands and have death. In Deuteronomy, it says, I have placed before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. By loving Yahweh your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding close to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, so that you may live in the land. Deuteronomy 30, 19-20. Wait a second. This sounds familiar, right? I hope this all feels like deja vu for you. God blesses a human, then his family is fruitful and multiplies and fills the land. God gives them commands to listen to and tells them that listening to those commands is life and blessing. But not listening to those commands is death and a curse? This is Adam. God blessed Adam, male and female, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the land. God prepared a garden and he placed Adam in the garden. It actually says that God put Adam in the garden two separate times. The first time, it uses a regular term, regular word in Hebrew for put. It says he placed him or he put him in the garden. And the second time, it uses a unique word that sort of pops out in the Hebrew. The first time says, Yahweh God planted a garden towards the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Genesis 1.8. It's a regular Hebrew term for place. Then there's a short break to talk about all the rivers. And then it reminds us that God put the Adam in the garden. It says, Then Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden. Genesis 2.15. But this time, the word put is different. In English translations, it'll usually say place the first time, put the second time, or vice versa. Um, but in Hebrew, it's not, so, it's not so interchangeable. This time, the word put is the Hebrew word for rested or settled. So God rested Adam or settled him in the garden. It comes from the same Hebrew word as Noah's name, Noah, which means rest. Then later in Deuteronomy 12.10 and Joshua 24, when God brings Israel into the land that he promised for them, it says that he rested them with that same Hebrew word. Okay, God put two trees in the garden with Adam, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he gave Adam a command, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. And then when Adam and Eve ate from it, it brings a curse and they ultimately die. When God was bringing Israel into the land that he gave them, he gave them 600 commands and split them up on two mountains. One mountain represented obeying the commands, 
and that was the mountain of blessing. And the other mountain represented breaking God's command. That was the mountain of curse. If Israel didn't keep the commands that that God gave them, God said they would receive the curses. So here's what he said. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of Yahweh your God that I'm giving you today. The curse, if you disobey the commands of Yahweh your God and turn from the way that I commanded you today by following other gods, which you have not known. When Yahweh your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Eval the curses. Deuteronomy 11, 26-29. Why is Israel's story so similar to the story of Adam's? So similar that it's basically the Adam story completely repeated, except on a national level where a whole nation is the new Adam. This isn't just like neat. The authors deliberately and carefully crafted Adam's and Israel's stories to be similar with each other to make a crucial point. Remember how Adam's story ended? One of the inhabitants of the garden, a snake, deceived Adam and Eve and they disobeyed God. Then, because they didn't listen to God and rejected his life-giving presence, he gave them over to their decision. He sent them away from his presence. He sent them east of the Garden of Eden. Now, remember, the Bible is very specific about the details it includes. Whatever you're reading and you're like, why am I being told this information? Don't just brush it aside as, oh, I guess it's literary flourish or just how people used to write way back then or something like that, because that's not what's happening. I hope you're seeing in this series how carefully the authors have crafted the Hebrew Bible and deliberately included every detail. So the Bible specifically tells us that God sent Adam and Eve east of the garden after they broke his command. Then, by chapter 11, Adam's, Adam's descendants, end up in Babylon. That's the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. I explained this a couple of weeks ago, but even though in Genesis 11 it's usually translated into English as Babel, the Hebrew word is Babel, which is the Hebrew word for Babylon. So that means the Hebrew Bible begins with God partnering with Adam and Eve, who he brought into a good land that he prepared for them and gave them a command. But they didn't listen to God, and as a result, they were exiled and their descendants ended up in Babylon. Now, I think you can already see where this is going. Do you think that maybe Israel will encounter inhabitants of the land that God gives them who is going to influence them to disobeying God? Yes, absolutely. Before God sent them into the land, God warned them not to be led astray by the inhabitants of the land. He specifically tells them, don't make a covenant, which is a partnership agreement, with the people of the land. He said, be careful that you do not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their memorial stones and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other God, because Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would prostitute themselves with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might prostitute themselves with their gods and cause your sons also to prostitute themselves with their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods cast in metal. Just like Adam, Israel doesn't listen to God's commands. They followed the inhabitants of the land, and they too are exiled. And guess where they end up? Babylon. Later, when Israel has continued to disobey him for generations, 
Babylon comes, and in the book of 2 Kings, it says that Babylon's king captured Jerusalem. Then he exiled all Jerusalem, all the captains, all the mighty men of valor, all the craftsmen and the smiths, 10,000 exiles. None was left except the poorest sort of the people of the land. So he deported Jehoiakim to Babylon, along with the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the notables of the land. He deported all as captives from Jerusalem to Babylon. 2 Kings 24:14-15. Just like Adam and Eve, God brought the Jewish people into a land that he prepared for them and gave them commands. But they also didn't listen to God, and so they also, as a result, were exiled and ended up in Babylon. So Genesis 1-11 through is the Israel story in miniature. Or another way of saying that is, it's the introduction to the Hebrew Bible. Because what happens on a smaller scale with Adam to Babylon in Genesis 1-11 through happens to Israel over the rest of the narrative from Genesis 12 through the end of 2 Kings. Just as God partnered with Adam and brought him into a good land, gave him commands, and told him to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the land, then when Adam disobeyed, exiled him to Babylon. So the rest of the Hebrew Bible is about God partnering with Abraham's family, multiplying them, bringing them into a good land that he prepared for them, giving them commands that they also don't listen to, and then they too are exiled in Babylon. Remember, though, that the Jewish people were introduced as the resolution to the curse that Adam brought into the world. So why does the story go to great lengths to show that Israel is the resolution if Israel fails the same way as Adam did and then is sent into exile just like Adam? Because the laws that God gave Israel weren't the solution. Israel was always supposed to look past the laws to future restoration. Think back to the garden. Adam was supposed to listen to God and not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but he did anyway. If Adam wasn't able to listen to God in the Garden of Eden, of all places, when there was only one command, when we keep reading and see that Israel is the new Adam, and that God gave Israel more than 600 commands, we should be thinking to ourselves, how will the new Adam keep so many laws? Then Israel lasts about two seconds before they break the commands God gave them. And they don't just break it on one occasion. If you read the Hebrew Bible, since they start getting the law in Exodus, Almost the entire narrative is devoted to their failures and God's severe warnings and consequences that are paired with his promise to never reject them and to deliver them. And before the Torah ends, right before God rested them in the land, he tells them he knows they're going to break the law and that he'll send them into exile when they do. Deuteronomy 31.16 says, Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, And this people will arise and play the prostitute with the foreign gods of the land into the midst of which they are going. And they will abandon me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. But God also promised to bring them back from exile. In Deuteronomy 30, God tells the Jewish people that not only the blessing, but also the curse will come upon the Jewish people and that they'll be exiled into captivity because of their disobedience. Just like Adam's descendant ended up in Babylon. But he also promises to bring them back from captivity and restore them when they finally call on him and listen to him. But notice what God says will happen in that time when Israel will listen to him. He says he'll circumcise their hearts. Then Yahweh your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If any of your scattered countrymen are at the ends of the earth, 
From there, Yahweh your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. Yahweh your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will be good to you and make you more numerous than your fathers. Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and all your soul, so that you may live. Deuteronomy 30, 4-5 God promises to stick with the Jewish people, even though he knows they're going to break the covenant, and he'll send them away from the land, east, into Babylon. He says that when they do listen to him, he'll still be there and he'll restore them. And he says that in that time, he'll circumcise their hearts so they'll be able to love him and so they'll live. So I'm not going to get into the circumcision metaphor here. We'll talk about it more next week. But for Israel to be able to love God and live, which by now we know means choosing life or following God's commands, Israel needs God to change hearts somehow. But this isn't just Israel, because in Genesis 6 and 8, it tells us that all humanity is completely corrupt and evil from childhood. So we all need God to change our hearts. And God's promise to change Israel's heart is connected to God's promise to restore Israel after they break the Torah. The Torah would be pretty hopeless without that promise, but that promise is there. It's foreshadowed in Genesis 1 through 11, when God doesn't leave humanity scattered in Babylon, but calls a new human, Abraham, out of Babylon to be his covenant partner. And it's there at the end of the Torah, when God says he knows Israel will break the Torah, but that he won't reject them and he'll change their hearts. Then, just like how God honed in on one of Adam's descendants, Abraham, to restore humanity after the exile to Babylon in Genesis 11, later, when Israel is exiled to Babylon in 2 Kings, the focus is likewise on one specific descendant of Abraham this time. The book of 2 Kings and the narrative that has been continuing since Genesis 1 ends with Israel exiled to Babylon. But the very last paragraph shines a blinding light of hope into Israel's future by showing that King David's descendant, Jehoiakim, is okay. The whole narrative ends with Jehoiakim, who's King David's descendant, released from prison, given new clothes, and treated kindly. That's the entire narrative, the grand narrative from Genesis 1 through 17 that is unbroken. It ends with King David's descendant, even though Israel is in captivity, this one, Jehoiakim, he's okay. He's released from prison. He's treated kindly. He's given new clothes, which, by the way, intentionally sounds like the Joseph story from Genesis. It's inspiring hope in King David's descendant, who will be like Joseph. The whole narrative ends focusing on King David's descendant to remind us about the promise God made to David about the anointed one from his line, who will ultimately be the one who will restore all of Israel, and on behalf of Israel, restore all of creation. Just like Abraham was God's first step in solving the mess the last time humanity blew it in Babylon, now Jehoiakim is the next step towards resolution, and that resolution is the Messiah, the anointed one. So the point or purpose of the Torah is not the laws, though of course Israel was supposed to keep those laws. The point of the Torah is God's promise to restore Israel and change their hearts, which is inseparably tied to the Messianic age. Because as the rest of the Hebrew Bible bears out, just like Adam, Israel didn't listen to him. They don't keep the laws. Now, before we read from Deuteronomy, 
I want to recommend two books to you guys. Dr. Seth Postel is a Jewish believer in Jesus, and he's done a lot of really helpful work on the relationship between Adam and Israel. So first, I want to recommend his book, Adam as Israel. It's really comprehensive. And the second book um, he also worked on is called Reading Moses and Seeing Jesus. This book is by Dr. Erez Soref, Dr. Eitan Barr, and Dr. Seth Postel. Each of those guys is Israeli. They're, they're all Jewish. Actually, Seth Postel lives in Israel, I think now, but um, he, he's a Jewish guy, but I think he's from uh, New Jersey. But uh, it's a small book and it's got one of the best introductions to understanding how the Torah points to Jesus. And one of the chapters summarizes how and why Israel is a new Adam. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 10. So it will be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have placed before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where Yahweh your God has scattered you, and you return to Yahweh your God and obey him with all your heart and soul in accordance with everything that I have commanded you today, you and your sons, then Yahweh your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If any of your scattered countrymen are at the ends of the earth, from there Yahweh your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. Yahweh your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will be good to you and make you more numerous than your fathers. Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of all your descendants, to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and all your soul, so that you may live. And Yahweh your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you will again obey Yahweh and follow his commandments, which I am commanding you today. Then Yahweh your God will prosper you abundantly in every work of your hand, in the children of your womb, the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For Yahweh will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey Yahweh your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to Yahweh your God with all your heart and soul. Deuteronomy 30, 1-10 Let's meditate on scripture together. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Take some time to think about each question, and you can pause if you need some extra time to think or to pray. First question. Remember that it wasn't just Adam who sinned, but even God's chosen people, Israel. What does this say about humanity? Second question. First with Adam and again with Israel, instead of handing humanity completely over to their sin, God sticks with a remnant. First, Adam's descendant, Abraham, and then Abraham's descendant, the Messiah. What comes to mind as you think about God's commitment to never reject his people? And last, we need God to change our hearts so that we can listen to him and experience the restoration that he promised. Are you willing to allow God to change you? Take a moment and ask him to do that. Pray with me. 
God, you are a just God who punishes evil. Thank you for your justice and for not stranding us in this world full of evil. We know that we have and do contribute to the evil in the world. Our own hearts are part of the problem. Thank you for your patience with us and for giving us the chance to choose you again. Please renew our hearts and give us your Holy Spirit to teach us how to obey you. And we will. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Torah Guide Podcast. If you want to meditate on this lesson some more, check out the video and reading plan that go along with it, either at thetorahguide.com or on Instagram and Facebook. The Torah Guide is a totally crowdfunded nonprofit that makes all sorts of resources to help you read the Hebrew Bible and discover Jesus, including this podcast, animated videos, devotionals, reading plans, and more. And we're able to do it because of generous people like you. So if you want to be part of helping people discover how the Hebrew Bible points to Jesus, you can sign up to become a monthly supporter or make a one-time gift at thetorahguide.com give.